My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, over the past several weeks, what we've done is we've been unpacking how God builds up his church, how he builds up his church. And today we come to a big topic to unpack uh, with one another. And so I'm just going to jump right in and, and read our passage and get going on it, okay? Um, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, that's where we're going to be. If you're new to the Bible, that's okay. You're not alone. Um, the book of Matthew uh, is the first book in the New Testament, which is the writings that were written after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection by his, by his apostles, by his disciples. Matthew's right at the beginning, and that starts about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Once you find the book of Matthew, find the big number 16. That's chapter 16. And then skip on down to the little number, 13. That's the, ter- the 13th verse and where we will be gathering from, or wh- where we will be working from today, okay? So I'm going to read it here, and, and then we'll get going. My Bible says, has a title on top of this that says, Peter's Confession of the Messiah. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Um, well, this is a very popular passage of scripture for us, and, and in it, Jesus told us that he's going to build up a church, which in turn is going to be the mechanism that builds up his people. And, and while church might be an ordinary or a common word for us, it's actually quite complicated, as it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. To those who are outside the church, the church is an organization that is viewed with some level of suspicion, and it's been that way throughout history it's always been this way. And, and, but for those who are also inside the church, there are a variety of definitions as to what actually constitutes a church. Is it a building? Is it a hierarchical structure like the Roman Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church? Is the church not confined to a building or a denomination at all? Is it just the people of God everywhere? Everybody who's put their faith in Jesus. Everybody who's trusting in the promises of Jesus. You see, it's actually fairly difficult to define the word church nowadays, but, but we have to ask it here. We have to try because Jesus, uh, in this text, it says he uses the word church as the thing that he is building. What is he actually building? What is he actually referring to? A building, a denomination, a people? What's more confusing is that when we venture beyond the definition of the word church um, into the experience of church, Many who would say they are a part of a church wrestle to see the value that church actually brings. Uh, don't worry, you can be honest about that if that's you around here. In, in fact, struggling to see the value of church is something that, that Dave and myself had extended wrestling with. <laughs> What's the value of church? Is it really worth our time? Is it really worth our investment? Is it really worth our attention? Is it really worth our sacrifice? 
Is it actually accomplishing anything? Why does it feel so laborious? Why does it feel like a chore, like an inconvenience? Why on some, some weeks it just feels like it's a time suck? We've been there, and we love helping people with those questions. In fact, that's what we're going to be doing in our sermon today. Uh, some of us are perhaps wrestling with these questions for the first time because um, we're actually, uh, given the occasion of coronavirus, we're actually engaging uh, the Sunday morning church experience in, in new ways, which is forcing us to ask questions. What actually is church? If I can watch it in the comfort of my own home, on the comfort of my own couch, on a screen, in my pajamas, on Wednesday. <laughs> What's really the true value add here? Uh, By the way, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, we're so glad that you're here with us. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Um, These are all great questions. Great questions to ask, and and to answer them, what we actually have to do is we have to counterintuitively get out of the way of this word church. Right up on the front end. Why? Because church has spent centuries and centuries, like a slow meandering river, it's spent centuries picking up all of this sediment and moss and debris, Have you ever seen the end of the Mississippi River? It's just full, it's brown, it's dark brown. That's kind of what the definition of church has come to be. It's muddy, it's murky, it means different things to different people. It's all molded together. It's got 2,000 years of accumulated institutions and associations and definitions. The word that's really written behind the church here in your Bible is the Greek word ekklesia. And and ecclesia is not a river full of definitional sludge. What it actually is, it really carries with it more of a brick-like clarity that you can hold, that you can touch, that you can find out and and decipher what it is very simply by looking at it. So we're going to be unpacking what ecclesia is today. Because when we hear the word church with our modern-day English ears, we hear way more than what Jesus' original hearers did and what the first century people of his day did when they heard the word ecclesia, okay? And, and we need to get this right because there's a lot of big promises here, are there not? Jesus said that his ecclesia is going to have ultimate power over Satan and hell. He says that it plays a primary part in the actualizing, the realizing of, of the Lord's prayer. The, the, the Lord's prayer is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says that he's handing over the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom, which are going to bring that heaven to earth, to the assembly in the midst of the ecclesia, to actualize and realize kingdom realities in their midst. Not just spiritually in heaven, but actually down here on earth. He's saying that he's empowering the assembly to fully realize its greatest spiritual hopes. Nothing less. And so if you're confused on what the church is, or if church has become really frustrating instead of life-giving, or if you're honest, you would rather spend your Sunday a hundred different places with a hundred different people... I want to suggest that that perhaps you have got drug into the slow, meandering, millennial old slog that is the notion of church and lost the notion notion of ecclesia, the assembly. And so I I hope to get all of us back on track this morning, okay? And to do that, we're going to unpack three main aspects of the ecclesia um, that, that Jesus reveals for us in this passage. First, the foundation of the ecclesia, second, the nature of the ecclesia, and then third, the power 
of the ecclesia. And this sermon is actually going to function more like a three-course meal where we're going to start with a salad. That's going to be really the foundation. Then we're going to get to the meat and potatoes or a tofu and vegetables, if that's you. Um, when we're talking about the nature, what is the nature, the essence of ecclesia? And then, then we're going to finish with a good dessert, the power of ecclesia. Okay? So, first the foundation, the assembly, uh, the, first the foundation of the ecclesia, the, the assembly. Um, Jesus is using a physical building metaphor here, okay? Uh, what does he say he's building it on, the foundation? I love this interchange between Jesus and his disciples. First, he asks them who people say that he is, and they just pop off answers. One person says, uh, John the Baptist. And it's true, many people uh, heard Jesus' message and thought he was a, a sort of raised from the dead, John the Baptist, because their messages were so similar of repentance and baptism and kingdom. Their, their messages were so similar that people often heard Jesus' message and they're like, is that John the Baptist? In fact, even Herod, who actually had John the Baptist beheaded, when he heard about Jesus and his message, he said, ah, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And then someone else says, ah, Elijah. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament about a great prophet coming to speak to the people before the the Messiah would come, Elijah. Uh, some say that you are Jeremiah. Uh, you know, Jesus really didn't speak a lot of positive things about the geopolitical nation of Israel, and neither did Jeremiah. So people would say, oh, he's Elijah. Someone would be like, no, nah, he's speaking kind of all doom and gloom for us, Israel as a nation. So he's more like Jeremiah. So the people have no idea who Jesus is, is what this tells us. But then Jesus turns it on his disciples. He says, but you, you, who do you say that I am? It's the most important question in life. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's such an important question. We actually spent a whole sermon series unpacking it as we walked through the gospel of Mark. We called the sermon series the most important question ever asked because the gospel of Mark is oriented around different people answering that question differently, who Jesus is. Uh, if you're watching on our YouTube, you can actually just skip on back there. It's on our YouTube channel, the most important question ever asked. And so Jesus asked this question, who do you think I am? And, and his, you can picture the disciples conferring among themselves. And Peter steps forward to present the answer. He, he said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And you get the sense that Jesus is overjoyed with the sense. He says, blessed are you. And he loves this answer so much that, that his response actually mimics Peter's answer, Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, that's right, that's my name, and, and that's my son-father relationship. And then he goes on to say, this is your son-father relationship, Peter, and this is your name. He says, you are the son of Jonah. Presumably, this is Peter's father's name. And I say to you that you are Peter, Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my ecclesia, my assembly. So Jesus' response mimics Peter's answer and throws in this play on the word rock. Now, now there's been a historic debate around what this means for the foundation of the church. What does this mean for the foundation of the church? Is it Peter? Is Peter the foundation of the church? This is the, the Roman Catholic Church has taken this position. And so they trace uh, the succession of the sitting pope back to Peter. That's not necessarily through birth line, but actually through gospel transmission or is it on the full band of disciples who would be apostles? You, you see, all of them were present, and Peter could be acting as a spokesperson of sorts here. 
And, and that might make a little more sense because in just a few chapters, what we see happening is the disciples get into an argument. And that argument is who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it's difficult to imagine them having that argument given their interpretation of this passage being, oh, Peter, he's the rock. He's, he's the thing that everything's going to move forward upon. But that's still pretty presumptuous. And so when it comes to interpreting Scripture, it's always best to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Um, and to do that, uh, we look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It's a great, oh man, a great chapter of Scripture. Um, we're going to pick it up in verse 17. But what's happening in these verses right here is the Apostle Paul is actually arguing for racial reconciliation, for ethnic reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. And, and he does this by pointing back to the gospel of Jesus. And, and out of that, he actually also talks about this foundation that, that the, the, the ecclesia, the church of God, is going to be built on moving forward and is being built on by his time. Verse 17, Paul says, He, that's Jesus, came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those of you who are, who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. See, so Paul's arguing there's a breakdown of hostility between all ethnicities when the gospel is right, rightly understood. All ethnic conflicts are solved in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what Paul is saying. But then he goes on, he says... This God's household is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So here we have notions of Jesus building his church and a foundation, and that foundation is the prophets. Those who are the people that wrote the Old Testament. We read about them in the Old Testament and they authored the Old Testament. Uh oh, Siri's talking to me. That's embarrassing. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, and, but then also the apostles are part of this foundation. That, that is Jesus' 12 disciples, minus Judas plus Paul who through their ministry and work would come to author and oversee the early church. They would come to author and oversee all of the New Testament writings. So what does it mean that the assembly is built on these people? Well, first it means that when we come to the ecclesia, when we come to the assembly, that God's son is building something on sons of man. Now, that's pretty remarkable. In Scripture, we hear it the other way around a lot. In fact, uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that anybody who hears his word and obeys it is like a man who built his house upon the rock. So Jesus' words is the foundation there. Meaning the person's going to be secure in God as they sit upon the word of Christ. And when it comes to God's assembled people, the ecclesia, God has set, a, set aside a special set of people that have put forward and written down the words of Christ for us. What's remarkable is that even though we have 40 different authors writing over the, the span of 1,500 years, they're all unified in their message of the Messiah. And so they function as a unified foundation for us. Now, what promise does Jesus attach to this? That the gates of hell cannot overcome 
it. That's his ecclesia, his gathering, his formal gathering, his assembly. Now, this is war imagery, so this is Jesus acknowledging the spiritual reality that Satan is opposed to this ecclesia. But when an assembly founds themselves on the complete word of God, Satan cannot defeat them. It's an incredible promise. And in this promise, there's also intrinsically a warning. A warning. If if an ecclesia or an assembly decides to get rid of one or some of the pillars or part of the pillar of one of the pillars, it'll eventually topple over. Remember, we're talking about organized ecclesia here. We're talking about Christian assemblies. When an assembly gathers, but then agrees to rip out pages of the Bible, it destroys the foundation that it's actually sitting upon. Some examples. Um, When they decide that the creation account given by Moses and the historical, uh, uh, the, the history that he outlays, when we decide that we can't trust that, we're kicking out. A pillar. Now, I'm, I'm classically trained as in astrophysics, and so uh, creation and, and how everything is, is ordered in the universe has a really big importance to me, and it's very compatible with Moses' creation account. Or, or when the supernatural events that the prophets record for us, or the, the miracles that Jesus did uh, and the apostles witnessed and, and realized in the early church, when those are dismissed as, as unlikely, we're kicking out a pillar. When it's concluded that Paul was wrong and how to live a holy life pleasing to God, we're kicking out a pillar. When the assembly comes together and agrees upon these things, it's as if they're sawing off one of the legs in the chair that they're sitting on. And the gates of hell will eventually prevail. It will lose the power to resist Satan and his armies. That's actually what's at stake here. It's a big deal. And that's why here at Sedaris, we we count each and every part of the inspired, perfect word of God, the Bible. We call all of it the word of God, and we preach the way that we do. We typically preach through books of the Bible, and, and one of the biggest considerations that we make when we decide upon a book of the Bible to preach next is what part of the Bible has been sitting on the back burner for a while. Because we're really committed to preaching the full counsel. We, we, we want you to experience the full counsel of Scripture. What's been sitting on the back burner that, that we need to lean into as an assembly? And in fact, uh, that's actually how I picked what to preach on today. Um, I, 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 asked my, I asked a question. I said, what part of the Bible haven't we heard of when it comes to the building up of God's people? And I realized that we had not had as our starting point the words of Jesus. And so I, I looked through our list of build-up scriptures that we've compiled to, for anything that's coming out of the Gospels or Revelation, those parts where Jesus' words are speaking. You see, we're, we're thoroughly committed to preaching the full counsels of God's word here in this community without holding back uh, the, the parts that are hard to stomach, without holding bar- back the parts that we think you may not like. That's our job. Why? So that Satan will not prevail in our midst. So, so that's the foundation of the, of the ecclesia that Jesus has put. That's the foundation. That's what this ecclesia is built upon, the prophetic, the, the prophetic and apostolic ministry that brought us the word of God, the Bible. But what exactly is Jesus building on top of it? What is Jesus actually building on top of it? What's its nature? And, and to understand that, we need a proper conception of this word ecclesia, and how Jesus used it. 
Um, for those of my friends who enjoy unpacking history and language and, and how those two work together, this is going to be fun for them. Uh, for those of us who, who aren't really, uh, don't really love the technical stuff, this might be a little boring, but, but stick with me because it's going to flesh itself out in a really practical, practical way, okay? Um, but before, before I want to talk about what the ecclesia is, we need to talk about what it isn't because some of us have even been taught this word wrong. Um, at some point, someone who is trying to prove that the church wasn't a hierarchy like the Roman Catholic Church, what they did is they noticed that ecclesia, the assembly, the word that Jesus uses here, sounds a lot like ekekaleo, which means to call out. And they concluded that the assembly was simply those who God had called out of the world and, and separated. And, and voila, now the church, as we have translated here, isn't an institution anymore. It's a people. Now, it's true that the people of God are those who God has called out from the world. In fact, the entire Bible is really narrating that point. But we actually don't get it from this word here. This word is saying something much more dynamic than that. Um, it actually re represents what's uh, a common etymological fallacy, which, you know, typically... Um, preachers make, which is we come to the Greek languages and, and uh, we find a word that sounds like the word that we're trying to figure out what it is and we end up conflating and equating their definitions with one another. It's like if we were trying to figure out what the word butterfly meant and we say, well, we know what butter is and we don't know what fly is, so a butterfly must be a, a, a small insect that's made of churned dairy, okay? <laughs> um, that's not exactly how we work with language, right? So how are we to understand this word ecclesia? Well, if you were to sit down and read through the Gospel of Matthew in a single setting. This is what you would see. You would see that Jesus went from town to town to town declaring the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was close. It was coming to earth. He said, he said who will receive this kingdom. He told his followers to pray for the kingdom. He told them to seek the kingdom. He told them to ask for the kingdom. He told them to proclaim the kingdom of God. He promised to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of God. And then he goes through parable and parable and parable, uh, telling them what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like buried treasure. The kingdom of God is, is, is like a, a valuable pearl. The, the kingdom of God is like a sower sowing seed in a field. And we come to this interchange now after 15 chapters of this, and, and he says this to Peter. He says, on this rock, I will build my, and if you were forced to fill in the blank, you would say kingdom 100% of the time. But that's not the word that he used. He uses ecclesia. And it's almost jarring, because uh, for the first 15 chapters, Matthew tells us that Jesus has been about kingdom, 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 and now we have ecclesia, assembly. So what is it? What is this ecclesia? What is this assembly? Well, it, it originated in the 5th century BC Athens, where playwrights and historians were using it to really uh, talk about these gatherings that were happening in cities of citizens coming together to debate and then vote on issues called polis. Uh, this is in the Greek world. Um, Aristotle uh, uh, really grabbed onto these and, and loved these, and so much so that his, the, the person who he mentored, Alexander the Great, implemented them across the kingdom. There were these polises in every city. In every Greek city, there was a polis. His successors would come to, to establish 30 such cities with polis in the Palestine era. But by the first century, these political ecclesia, you know, they're political bodies that were debating political issues and, and voting, these were no more... Uh, 
Greece had morphed into the Greco-Roman Empire and democratic debate and voting was now a thing of the distant past. But the ecclesia remained as a word. It was used to describe the assembly of people or crowds still that were unified around a common purpose. So we actually see this in the Bible. So in Acts chapter 19, Luke is talking about a crowd that is protesting against Paul. For hours and hours on end, this protest went on is what Luke tells us. He calls this protest an ecclesia. Some people are upset with the, pro- the, the governors are kind of upset with the protest. They say, hey, uh, we actually have uh, methods where people can come together and, and try things in, in, what, in more judicial areas if Paul's done anything wrong. So go to that ecclesia and try your case there. Ecclesia is a unified assembly with a common purpose. But what purpose did Jesus have in mind? That's the question, right? What is the purpose that Jesus had in mind? Well, in the third century BC, a number of Jewish scholars, they began translating the Hebrew scriptures, that's the Old Testament, into the Greek, and what is now called the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is a great tool. We don't get our English translations from it today. We go back to the original language still of the Hebrew, but it's a great tool because it's a lens into how people understood the Greek language around the time of Jesus. And it's a lens, and we learn a lot about what ecclesia really means when it comes to the people of God through that Septuagint lens. And Israel is defined as an ecclesia after they come out of Egypt, when they assemble together as a visible demonstration of their nationhood under God. They're called an ecclesia. When they assemble before Mount Sinai to receive their kingdom's laws, ecclesia. When they're instructed to assemble continually to hear the law read, ecclesia. When they regularly assemble at the temple to worship God, ecclesia. When they assemble in festivals, ecclesia. In fact, their their entering of the promised land is also viewed as one great assembly in the area of Palestine. And what we come to find throughout the entire Old Testament is that ecclesia serves as a very crucial but simple role. It's the the assembly of God's people that makes God's kingdom visible. Ecclesia is the assembly of God's people that makes God's kingdom visible. And there's this, scarlet, this debate about what part of ancient Israel, well, what part of their assemblies were political and religious, but they're actually the same thing. To bow before God as king, that's a political statement, is also the same thing as to bow before God as, as redeemer. That's a religious statement. And so the ecclesia or assembly of Israel is something that God's kingdom made, what was God's kingdom made manifest. A people worshiping and submitting themselves to the rule of God. But when God exiles his people, first the northern kingdom, then the southern kingdom, ecclesia is no more. It's gone. All that's left are the prophets prophesying a time when God would send his Messiah to establish ecclesia once again, his visible kingdom on earth. Once again, that's in the prophet Joel chapter 2. And so in the Old Testament, Israel's entire political career and national story is pictured as an assembling and then a scattering through exile. And then the promise of another future, more glorious ecclesia to come. And so this is what Jesus has in mind when he's talking about ecclesia, a a new Israel of sorts. Here is the reconstitution of God's physical, visible kingdom on earth that Jesus talked nonstop about. But now the kingdom isn't going to express itself geopolitically. 
by occupying a plot of land. No, no, now the kingdom of God made visible is going to happen anywhere his people, ecclesia, wherever and whenever they assemble. The people of God assembled together then creates outposts of God's heavenly kingdom on earth. You see, this kingdom of heaven that Jesus up to this point really talks about as mysterious, vague, and abstract in these first 15 chapters of Matthew now becomes crystal clear through the assembly of God's people. When Christians formally gather together in God's name, they become the geography of Christ's presently landless kingdom. You can literally see it with your eyes because the people are assembled together. They're agreed on who their king is. It's where they come together. They identify one another. They wave their kingdom passports in the air. They sing and shout their allegiance to God above all other allegiances. It's where they bring in new members through baptism, where they proclaim the promises and the decrees of their king, God's word, above all else. It's where they look back to the founding of their kingdom, the Lord's Supper. And so by nature... This assembly is political. Now, don't hear me wrong. It's not political in the sense that it aligns with political parties of the day. It's actually political in that it parts with all the political parties of the day. And and this is what we need to keep in mind, especially now the people of God assembled into local ecclesia, into local assemblies, has always been a protest of the reigning, sinful, broken government. And, and, and governments, they always catch on, they always catch on to it. Um, why do you think Christians have been persecuted by government entities for centuries, for millennia? Their assemblies in the first century proclaimed an ultimate Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Jesus' ecclesia is intrinsically political. Lord is the name that was used, the title used of the emperor. It, fly, it flew directly in the face of the Greco-Roman Empire, and so the empire persecuted it and burned its followers alive. And it's one that has, the the ecclesia is something that has prophetically, defiantly met for 2,000 years in all cultures, and now has been persecuted for the same reason. And and so for us today in the United States, we assemble together each week, make it really practical for you, and, and we proclaim Jesus as the true and better president. We proclaim Jesus as the true and better Supreme Court bench. We gather together and we proclaim Jesus as the true and better creator and and, and author of laws. Jesus is better. We, we, We politically proclaim it every time we gather together as the assembly. So that's the political nature of the ecclesia, which is very crucial, but perhaps more importantly for us, there's a very practical nature of the ecclesia, of, of its nature, and that's its physicality. Because there's this thing about ecclesia that's a bit ironic to talk about in this format, format electronically with you. Um, because if you were to look at Aristotle, this philosopher who loved the notion of ecclesia, you'd look at him and say, well, the ecclesia, that, it's not a building, right? He would say, of course the ecclesia is not a building. There's no people there. And then you'd look back at him and say, aha, well, the the ecclesia is not a building, it's a people. He would look back at you and maybe a little cockeyed, he would say, well, the people are the people. They become an ecclesia when they gather together. See, that's the beauty of this very plain word, ecclesia. 
It's tied to the idea of physicality, of place. It's chained to it, in fact. You can't get away, you can't separate the idea of ecclesia and a place together. Uh, people, and now whether that be in a building people owns or people own, the church owns, or in a field, or there has to be a place. And then when the assembly disbands, the people are no longer called an ecclesia. Why is this important? Why, why am I leaning into this? Because there's this notion that pervades American and, and Western Christianity that goes like this. I can be part of the church, the ecclesia, on my own. I can do that on my own. Which Jesus and his apostles would come alongside Aristotle and say, that's kind of nonsensical. How can you be part of, a, of an assembly? How can you be part of a gathering by yourself? It's completely illogical, but it's exactly what Satan has convinced millions of Christians of in order to separate them, tempt them, destroy them. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, Many have left ecclesia, local assemblies, for good reasons. Perhaps an assembly they were part of uh, started to forsake the kingdom and image of Jesus Christ and started pursuing the kingdom and image of a charismatic leader or uh, the, the, the kingdom and the image of the Democratic Party, or the Republican Party. Or, or perhaps um, they were actually, this ecclesia, this assembly started to forsake some of the foundation that it was supposed to be resting upon. Perhaps the leadership actually hurt them in some significant ways. Perhaps this assembly started malfunctioning instead of building them up. And, and Jesus talks about these people um, In John chapter 15, he tells us a parable about a lost sheep. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Do you not go to the, do you not leave the 99 behind to go find the other one? You see, Jesus has compassion on those who have become disconnected from the ecclesia. Deep compassion. Why? Because they're disconnected from the life that, that he's trying to bring them through his physical kingdom gathered. So what does he do? He goes and he, he goes to them. But he, he, he doesn't stay there with them. He, he's not content to just sit and hang out with that one sheep. No, no, he kneels down, he picks them up, he throws them on his shoulders, and he walks them back to the other 99. Now, in, in the case of our example, it, it doesn't mean that Jesus will bring them back to an unhealthy assembly they left that, that hurt them, but he wants to bring them back to a healthy one where they can find life again. Now, now, you can have a relationship with Jesus on your own. Don't get me wrong, absolutely. But the chief end of Christianity, what Christianity is all about, isn't just a personal relationship with God, even though that's kind of been said over and over. It's the personal relationship with God in the midst, coming back to, continually re-engaging the assembly that it might be built, that you might be built up. Why? Because Jesus told us that the assembly is where his tangible, physical kingdom is. And so therefore, it is the primary way that he unleashes his kingdom presence and his kingdom power into their lives. Now, I'm mostly preaching to the choir. Uh, If you're tuning in, it's likely because you have been connected to the Sidaris assembly regularly. Uh, For many of you, you were the lamb all alone in the wilderness. You've shared your story with me. You were the lamb all alone in the wilderness, and Jesus came, and he picked you up, and he put you on his shoulder, and he walked you to Sedaris. And you're experiencing life. 
And, and COVID has sidelined our assembling for a bit. That, that's okay. We're, we're taking steps to establish Jesus' kingdom outpost in Wallingford once again. But many of us have friends who conceive of Christianity like this, who won't let Jesus pick them up and bring them to his ecclesia, to his assembly, his kingdom outpost, for whatever reason. And, and the question is, how do you invite them? How can you help them let Jesus put them on his shoulders and bring him, bring them to one of their, one of his assemblies. Well, it's as simple as starting a conversation about it. Bring up your experience of, of God's assembly, a powerful way that it gripped you. If it's true that in fact our assemblies are a place where kingdom heavenly realities are fleshed out in our midst, surely there's something you have experienced. Go ahead and talk about that with your friend who is a Christian. If they don't bring up their decision not to go in assembly afterwards, just simply ask them curiously why, and then listen to their answer. It will most likely, just as a heads up, it's most likely going to be a mixture of, of pain and erroneous thinking. Uh, and, and that's fine. Okay, that's fine. Um, just listen. Just listen. The disciples of Jesus really aren't out to win arguments. We're out to win hearts. And so you just need to listen. There's no need to correct any erroneous thinking that might be going on. And then you do one of our Sedaris principles, which we call lead with lament. You join with them in the mourning of their pain. And then you invite them. And then you see if they come. That's how you invite somebody. You don't turn it into an argument where you're more concerned about their heart that they come and experience the kingdom realities that are present as we assemble together. Okay. So that's the foundation of the assembly, the word of God, and the nature of the assembly. It's both physical and political. Now let's get to our dessert, okay? The power of the assembly. The power of the assembly. Now we've already talked about how the assembly founded upon the word of God cannot be shaken by Satan. That it is powerful against all of the attacks of our spiritual enemies. That it can have confidence that it will, it will, it will persist by the grace and the protection of God as it's founded on the word. But there's even more here as well than empowerment to persevere. There's empowerment to actualize the kingdom of God in innumerable and even miraculous ways in our lives. Jesus said to Peter that, that uh, he would give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And, and whatever you bind on earth, he says, will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. These verbs are singular, okay? So, so he's still directly talking to the apostles as that unified foundation. But two chapters later, Jesus repeats himself and, and makes it clear that this binding and loosing power is actually for all assemblies in all time. Um, he broadens the scope, Matthew chapter 18. Just flip over a page if you want to join me there. I'm going to be picking it up in verse 18. It's coming in the context of, of church discipline, actually, but then uh, Jesus broadens it out for more universal application for everything here. 18, verse 18. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. There's that same phrase. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. So what is he saying? 
Well, he's saying that the nature of, he's applying this nature of the ecclesia as kingdom outposts. You can't have a visible kingdom without a visible king in the ecclesia, in the assembly. So what you have in the assembly is the heavenly body of Christ coming together, of Jesus taking shape in a formally gathered form. And it comes with the spiritual kingdom power to alter reality, which is a combination of both spiritual and physical. And how does he say that it comes about? How does he say that it happens? He says this kingdom potential, heavenly realities being loosed on earth, this kingdom potential comes about by agreement. Agreement. Agreement in the ecclesia unleashes the power of the kingdom into our lives and into the world, and that's how we build one another up, by assembling together and agreeing on what we're asking God for. That's it. Jesus is saying there's power in the kingdom outpost, outpost to realize tangible kingdom realities in its, midst, in its midst. Now, we don't get everything that we ask for, of course, of course and that's part of it is, is we, don't, we ask for the wrong things sometimes. Part of it is we don't ask with, uh, with, in faith, is what James tells us. In fact, there's an instance right in between uh, chapters 16 and 18 in, in Matthew where the disciples actually are trying to cast out a demon and they can't, and Jesus says oh, you, you kind of lacked special prayer and special faith in order to do that. But that, that's a different sermon for a different time. I want to focus on this precondition of kingdom power that is agreement. What exactly is it? How do we do it? Well, fortunately, we actually bump into the opportunity to agree with one another time and time again in our assemblies. But I think for the most part, we skip right over it. I skip right over it. And and these opportunities are captured in the word amen. Amen. Very simple. It's one of those Christian's words that we hear so much that it's actually lost its meaning to us. What does amen mean? Well, amen is a term that the people of God have always used. You can go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. It's there. Uh, And it's throughout the early church. And Jesus uses it as well. What it means is, may it be so. Or you could translate it, I agree. You see, it's right there. It's so subtle that we can miss it. Amen is a word that's meant to involve us in one another's requests to God, that they might become communal requests to God, because Jesus said when we agree with one another in the assembly, it will be done for us. And so I'm going to pull it all together now in a long sentence. How does Jesus build up his church? Well, the primary way that the people of God is built up as we come together in the assembly, trusting on the full word of God as a political and physical kingdom outpost where we agree with one another about what the gospel is and in our request that we make to God, which brings powerful heavenly realities into our midst. Admittedly, that is a long chain and this is a little bit complicated, but the promise is huge to roll up our sleeves and do the work of how do we actually agree with one another is actually what what, what is at our hand to do. And agreement's more than just saying amen. Actual agreement in prayer involves our entire being. It involves our mind. We track with one another's requests and make sure they're in line with God's word and focused on revealing his glory. It involves our heart. We come to understand the longing present in each other 
As we pray and partner with them and asking God alongside them, we mourn with them, we celebrate with them in their prayers. It involves our bodies. That's why oftentimes people raise their hands in prayer or worship. Worship songs are often prayers, and as our minds and hearts come alongside them, often our body seeks to respond with movements of agreement. So if you've ever wondered what exactly is going on when people raise their hands in the assembly, that's most likely the case. It's part of our body language that we're saying, I agree that, that, we're, that we may not be speaking an amen with our mouths, but we're saying it with our bodies. Amen. It's said after somebody else prays to say to God, I agree with that. Please let it be so, God. And so this is my prayer. And I hope that you can engage it um, with me now, both in, in mind and in heart and in spirit and wherever you're at you can agree with it. Father, our world is, hu- is, is hurting. It's hurting, but, but you are the beautiful healer. Please make your glory manifest to your people and to our city. Father, please reveal your son, Jesus, and his gospel. Father, you tell us in your word that the primary way you do this is through your ecclesia, your assembly, So I ask that you would heal our land, beautiful healer, so that that your visible kingdom outposts might be able to be visible again. And that people would feel safe entering them, God. Please, beautiful healer, heal our land and our hearts and our city. Teach us how to agree with one another that we might experience the realities of your kingdom tangibly, even now. We ask that you would build us up into the ecclesia you have planned for us so that Jesus' presence and his power would be unleashed into our lives and our city that more and more might recognize you and magnify you as the beautiful healer that you are. Amen. Well, at this point, the band is going to come up and, and lead in worship. We're so glad that you are here with us, and even now, um, if you are worshiping with other people, I would even encourage you where you are at to share the prayer requests that you guys have. That, that's just what you need from God. Share something that you need from God with one another, whoever you're watching this with. Um, share something that you need from God, and then take time praying with one another, tracking with each other, both in mind, heart, and spirit, and saying, amen. So, Thank you for being here with us and band. Take away. All right. Thanks, Ryan. We're going to close out our service today with a couple of songs. The first song is going to be one called Heal Our Land.